Welcome to Beyond Eight Figures. Super excited to be hanging out with the lovely Mary Goulet. Hola, Mary Goulet. How are Hi. you? Doing well. How are you? Good, good. Richie Ote. What's up, my brother? How you doing? Doing excellent. Thank you. Good, good. And if you're joining us for the first time here on Beyond Eight Figures, uh, we do sit down with entrepreneurs who have either exited uh, from a business for more than $10 million dollars uh, or currently uh, run businesses that gross more than $10 million annually. And we get to the bottom of their tactics and tools and strategies and shortcuts on how they started and scaled and in some cases exited from those businesses. So before we jump in uh, with, our, with our guest today, uh, who is joining us from Barcelona, Spain, uh, Marek Mislowski, and uh, he'd say it a lot sexier than I would, but, uh, but we'll, we'll just let Mark jump in here in a second. Uh, but I just wanted to touch base real quick on kind of the, the lay of the land here and, and, and where we're at. I actually took the family out of the house uh, for the first time uh, last night as a, as a family, all four of us, we went, uh, we went down to the beach uh, at night because the, uh, here in San Diego, they have this interesting phenomenon uh, what do they call it? The red, what do they call it? The red, um, red tide, red tide. That's what it is, which is interesting because it's not actually red tide at night. It's blue, like the algae and whatnot have like this iridescent sort of thing that goes on when it's stirred up by the, the waves and, and whatnot. It creates a super beautiful hue of, of blue when the, when the waves crash in, it's like, uh, it's like almost neon, like it's super interesting, super cool. Hmm. Uh, Mary, before I forget, do they, do they do, do, does it happen there by you in Encinitas also, or is it just like in certain parts of the coast? I don't know if it's certain parts, Richard would probably know that, but yes, it's here at moonlight, just like the shark attack last night. Yeah, I heard that too. Talk about a rough go for that kid. So he's out surfing. It's bad enough he's got to fight off a shark who's coming at him and he's punching the shark. But then he gets stung by a jellyfish, I think is, is what ended up happening or something like that. So Was that I mean, yesterday in San Diego? Oh my that God. was yesterday in San Diego, yeah. I guess yeah. lockdown is not a bad idea in the end. <laughs> <laughs> so, so really, we think we're doing it because of the coronavirus. We're actually doing the lockdown to protect people from what's going on you know, outside of our homes. So there, there you have it. <laughs> But um, but yeah, let's let, let's do this first and foremost, Mary. How how are you hanging in? Are you doing you doing okay? Give us an update real quick. Yeah, doing great. Um, hope they keep the beaches open here in California. Otherwise, they're closing down again tomorrow. Um, but life is pretty good. Life is pretty good. All right, Richie, how you hanging in? It's doing good. I'm you know I'm being super productive right here. And I, I just feel for the people who are freaking out, you know, like I said last week, whether you want to, whatever you want to see, there's evidence of it sitting in front. If you want to look at this as opportunity, there's opportunity everywhere. If you want to look at it as, you know, you're going to get taken down because everyone else is going to get rich, then you're going to get taken down. So I, I hope people really work on their mindsets during all this. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting to bring up opportunity, and uh, this is going to be a great uh, focus here of our conversation today with Mark. Uh, but, but Mark, let me ask you this: So you're, you're, I mean, you've been you're a global traveler. I mean, you've been all over, and and now you're in Barcelona. What what is it like? Just give us a sense of what the impact is 
where you are now. And have you been in Barcelona since the lockdown and the whole start of all this uh, interesting stuff that's going on? Yeah, thanks for having me here, uh, by the way. <laughs> and uh, about the COVID, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm semi-based. Uh, I'm switching between Cape Town and Barcelona, Cape Town in South Africa. And I decided to quickly come back to Spain just before the lockdown started, just to spend the lockdown together here with my girlfriend. Um, so yeah, I've been through the whole, the whole, the whole stage for the last four and five weeks. Uh, officially, we can't really leave the apartment. We can only go to the supermarket, and the yeah. police checkpoints are pretty strict. We were stopped uh, with our shopping, and we had to show to the police guy uh, the, the receipt from the supermarket, so he sees if whatever we have in our backpack is what we bought and at what time. If we're not using the receipt wow. from yesterday, so wow. yeah, it's not a joke. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And and let's say hypothetically your receipt was from yesterday, what would they do? Two thousand euro fine. Wow. Two thousand euro? Yeah. That's, yeah. You know, that's like six million dollars US now, right? I mean that's a lot. <laughs> that's, that's, that's a, yeah. That's, that's a couple thousand euros, yeah. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're pretty strict. Wow. Um, at the same time, uh, the, the, the society here seems to be pretty going with the rules. Because Spain was pretty tough hit by, by Corona. It's, it's already, you know, around 200,000 cases. Um, so it was the second worst uh, hit country in, in Europe. So it wasn't, it really wasn't a joke. People were freaking out yeah. here in Barcelona, yeah. which is such a dense yeah. city. Yeah? It's, it's as dense as Singapore. Um, so there's a lot of people uh, living on one square kilometer. So everyone was freaking out. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, you're, you're a, a very accomplished CEO. You've done some amazing things in the, in the world of business. So you're able to lead people, you're able to identify a goal, a vision, and assemble the right team to bring that goal and that vision to fruition. Playing that out on the flip side here, as far as uh, life is concerned, if you, if you were in charge, if you were leading the, the, the call in terms of what people needed to do and how they needed to do it, would you have handled things any differently in, uh, in that community or even back in Cape Town? You're talking in in the in the context of uh, of COVID because I, I was I wasn't sure or yeah or talking exactly. about the business yeah yeah I mean I mean you gotta remember South Africa and in general African countries they're they're such a different case study for the whole pandemic situation uh, and you gotta remember about a couple of things I just want to give you the background story before I answer the the question yeah? um, yeah. people in Europe people in the United States average age is pretty high. We have a lot of civilization uh, diseases and it makes us much more prone and less immune to the, to the whole COVID, COVID virus. In Africa, people are in general much, much healthier because the health service is shitty. So if you had some problems earlier, you're probably dead by now, as, as bad as it sounds. The average age in Africa is around 33 years old. So there are a lot of younger people that can handle coronavirus much better. And also Africa, although they have locked down their borders way after the States and way after Europe, there's been 10 times less flights from Wuhan to Africa. So, so from the, when you look at the proportion, they actually closed their borders way earlier. So there were mm. not in, in that many people that really landed in Africa with the virus. Having said that, um, once this spreads in Africa, the whole continent is screwed because the whole concept of lockdown and self-isolation is just a fairy tale because in Africa, 85% of people live day by day. There's like a family of eight living on 10 square meters. There's absolutely no way to self-isolate yourself. And if you don't work in the morning, you will have no chance to eat dinner in the evening. So once one street gets Corona, the whole district gets Corona. So basically what they do is they shut down the whole regions. And uh, whether the lockdown is a good idea or not, 
I think the history will tell us uh, there are a couple of outliers, countries like Sweden, for example, that have had a totally different approach than Europe or the States. And let's see in a couple months uh, what the numbers will say and whether our governments have really taken the, the right approach. Uh, there is no playbook for this. Uh, whenever someone asks me a question, I always remember this, I think New York Times article, saying that you got to watch out if the, the, the casualties of the lockdown, economical casualties in the long term, are not worse than the casualties of, of COVID. It's a tough decision. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And so just interesting to get your take on it, both from an African perspective and from, you know, being in, in Barcelona. Uh, so thanks for some perspective around that. Uh, let, let's put more context then around who you are and what you've done for those who, who don't know you. Uh, I mean, you've been extremely successful uh, as an entrepreneur, and one can only assume that you've uh, kept a lot of what you've made, hopefully, or you've plowed it back into to other things, as, as most entrepreneurs tend to do. But, uh, you know, assuming that you've taken uh, a good piece of what you've done and you put that on the side and you're playing with sort of the, the house's money at this point, uh, you know, by all definitions, you, you, you've had some home runs and really some, some grand slams. So you, you are really, really bullish on the continent of Africa. And, and a lot of what you've done from a, from a career perspective, I mean, has focused on the continent of Africa. And yeah. I was just talking to my wife uh, this morning uh, after looking through a, a lot of your, you know, TED Talks and the other things that you've done. Um, and what I find so interesting is how little media attention is given to the opportunities on that continent, at least from, from my perspective as a, as a 50-year-old man who yep. has seen nothing but images of famine and, like you said, you know, in, in a couple of your talks, you know, the, 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 the stomachs and the, you know, the, the, just, just, ugh, just the health, right? I mean, just all the things that were going on, you know, in just such horrible ways in so many parts of that country and almost nothing about the new Africa and everything that's going on and the opportunities that are there. Can you paint the picture for us, first of all, in terms of the ventures that you have brought to fruition and the success of those uh, ventures? And then to that end, give us some insight as an entrepreneur in terms of what the opportunities are on that continent. Yeah, so, so let, let me unpack it. So first, my yeah. story in 15 seconds, born and raised in Poland. Uh, my background really comes from finance. I joined a, comp a financial brokerage company in the early 2000s. That was like in the middle of the Polish economic growth. I was employee number five. And in three years, there was like 3,000 of us. So that's where the wow. real first real big money came. But then 2008 came and the crisis and all the millions we have made have also lost. At that time, I was super depressed and, and burned out. And I wanted to switch sectors. And with the, the rest of the little minds I had uh, that I was able to secure during the crisis, I went into startups because that's where the money was, technology businesses. You know, you could watch CNN and see guys from Silicon Valley doing crazy things. And, and also raising a lot of money from investors that allowed them to, to, to build something big very fast. So I got myself into technology businesses in Poland with a couple of smaller failures or, or successes. I met guys that uh, founded one of the biggest in the world e-commerce uh, companies. It's called Rocket Internet, probably not that known outside US, but after Amazon and Alibaba, one of the biggest ones. 
And at that time, they were trying to get ready to enter the African market. And they were the ones that told me about all those opportunities because I only knew two things from school about Africa. I only knew that we did some very bad things. By we, I mean, you know, the European colonizers in the way the Africa continent was colonized. And then even more harm was done to Africa by the way it was decolonized because countries have gotten political independence, but it, in terms of economical independence, it, it couldn't be farther from the truth. Uh, but then when you look deeper in, into the numbers, you just realize that seven out of 10 fastest growing economies in the world for a couple of years in a row were African economies. And then you would realize that it wasn't just because of the money they were making by subtracting uh, gold or oil, but also because the internal purchasing power was growing. People were making more and more money. They were buying stuff. They were becoming consumers. And the economy, uh, economy was also growing from the inside. And that's what we realized with, with doubling down and going and starting an e-commerce group there, uh, which, long story short, last year we did an IPO on Europe Stock Exchange. And, and yes, you are right. Africa is full of stereotypes and there are certain groups that are lobbying for these stereotypes to stay in power. And let me just mention two examples or three. Um, in terms of wine consumption or champagne consumption, most of the wine producers and champagne producers from Europe make most of their money from countries like Nigeria or Kenya, because that's where all that consumption is happening. But no one will tell you that um, mm. because they want to keep everyone outside. They want to keep the competition scared because otherwise they will enter the market. Then when you look at the huge, uh, or, uh, huge industry of charities, and I, I'm really biased against charities because I, I learned how they operate. I, I was so against how they operate to that extent that I launched my own charity. Uh, but to long, cut the long story short, there's a huge industry making money on keeping the problem alive. Uh, you know, all those kids with big bellies in the TV, they're already dead by now. And uh, maybe 1% of the money you're paying uh, from the TV ad you see is, is actually lending in those, in those pockets. And unfortunately, there's this vicious cycle that takes advantage of the continent having such a bad PR. And in economy, it's all about it's all about PR, and it's in investment, it's all about self-fulfilling prophecy. If you've seen my TED talk, you probably noticed that all I'm doing is talking about the good stuff, not because it's all beautiful, but because there's so much bad stuff being talked about that I wanted to find a balance and and show the good stuff as well. And you know how it is with investors: you have to say it's good, you have to show the good stuff. The money will come with the money you're building businesses, you're building wealth, and it's actually becoming good. <laughs> So um, a lot of a lot of stereotypes, even at such a basic level, like understanding how big the continent is, because all the maps that we look at in school that do not show how proportionally big Africa is. If you Google the true size of Africa, you will see the real size of Africa and you will realize that you can fit China, you can fit the United States, you can fit many European countries and it, there's still space left. That's wow. how big, really big African continent is. I fly from West Coast to East Coast, seven hours. Of course, depending on the size of the of the of the of the Boeing. But this is a very very big continent. We're talking about a billion of people, fifty-four countries. But obviously, the countries is, is also a fake concept because the countries were defined by by the colonizers a hundred years ago. You gotta look at tribes because tribes are the real countries with more than thousand years of history. And you realize that there are thousands of tribes with thousands of languages. In a country like South Africa, there are 12 or 11, I don't remember now, official languages, just within one country. So that shows you the depth of, of the cultural diversity, uh, diversification. Uh, 
uh, in the continent. And I could go on and on and on. Mm -hmm. and, and the truth is, uh, you see immense growth on so many levels uh, in different sectors of economy in Africa. But obviously, that opportunity comes at a high cost, a lot of risks. There's still a huge corruption, inefficiency, infrastructure is bad. I will become a victim of corruption. We can talk about it as well. But yeah. it's all balanced because the risk is relatable to the potential uh, profit. Yeah. Yeah. So, so to that end, the, the company that you ended up, um, were, were you, and just so we're clear here, the, t the company that ended up going public, that was uh, Jumia, right? The um, yeah. J-U-M-I-A. I just want to make sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah. yeah. And that, yes. was, that was a company that acquired your company and you ended up with a piece of that or that was actually your company and you were the founder of Jumia? That, that was the one piece I wasn't clear on. So, so we were two sister companies. Actually, there were seven of sister companies. They were all funded by the same huge investment fund called Rocket Internet. And I was the okay. co-founder of the online travel division. And there were six other business verticals. Online travel, e-commerce, marketplace, food delivery, ride hailing, classifieds, and I think one more. And then at some point, I think two years into operations, we decided doesn't make sense to grow seven companies separately. There's a lot of synergies if we combine businesses into one. Uh, so at that time we did share swap and we were growing all this together as you know seven co-founders and 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 pushed the, the whole company as a whole further. Got it. And so are you? Do you still have ownership of uh, of that? In in terms of were you able to hang on to anything? Did you already exit? Did you did you move out of that yeah. position or do you still have a piece of that? So operationally, I left. Uh, a couple months before the IPO, because I wanted to do an, an, another thing, open another company. Uh, from the shareholder point of view, I'm still playing long. But I don't know how, how closely you followed Jumia. After IPO, we really, the, the shares skyrocketed. I didn't sell at that time. But then we went down by 50 or 60 percent. Uh, yeah. And uh, this is not a good time to sell now. So I play long. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like four bucks, four bucks a share, I think, or something like that at this point, right? Super, super bad. Yeah, we can also talk about what was the, was the reason, but uh, you want to you wanna wait a little bit more to make any money out of it. Yeah. I gotcha. All right, so let me, let me kick it over to Rich. And uh, Rich, if you got questions for, for Merrick and then uh, give Mary an opportunity here and then we'll circle back in terms of the first uh, real uh, home run for you. But Rich, let me kick it over to you for a minute. Well, I wanted to kind of go back a little bit. What we normally open the show, we'll talk about qualifications of what actually got you there. Now we heard some of that story already, but it was more, yeah. do you yeah. currently still run a business that's making uh, 10 million or more or only exited or, or both? So, yeah, uh, it's uh, the both, I guess, the, because the, the, the second comp, the third company after I launched after Jumia is called RTB house. Of course I wasn't alone, you know, success always has many fathers. I'm not going to tell you I'm the, I'm the only CEO. There was a lot of guys, uh, in the team. Uh, it's a Polish AI company. We are specialized in retail and online travel. We analyze customer behavior to predict what they want to buy and when. <laughs> so that's basically what we do. And uh, last time I checked, we're currently generating the whole group, the global group, around 100 million plus. But obviously, we're spread among six continents, four, uh, sorry. And I'm responsible for the African continent because my personal business is always focused on uh, on Africa. So my, uh, my department, the one I'm responsible for, the one I launched right now is generating around 15 for 2019 in dollars. Uh, I'm talking about revenue. 
uh, annual revenue, the whole group is, has, has uh, reached 100 uh, in 2018 already. And, and that's a perfect segue to the next part of the question was, I, I know you touched on um, the Africa piece prior, but, but I wasn't quite clear. Did you choose to go to Africa because you saw that as the opportunity or was that the, just the area that you were designated to and, and then you noticed so much opportunity? No, I was extremely lucky. So this was the story. I have exited my Polish startup for, for an amount in, in dollars. It was close to a million dollars in 2011. And that was a time when I spent most of my life in Poland. And remember, I dropped out of university to go into my own business. So I had zero experience in working for international corporations. And I had zero proper business education. And that's where I realized I hit kind of a ceiling. And when you want to be an amazing CEO or executive, the common knowledge in Poland is that you want to go to Harvard or Oxford or Cambridge in, in Europe. Uh, then you want to get an internship in McKinsey or PricewaterhouseCoopers or Ernst & Young. And then you can you know, go up the ladder. If you want to be an online entrepreneur, the common knowledge in Europe is that you want to work at least for a year or two for Rocket Internet. So basically what I did is I applied to work for this investment fund in their Berlin headquarters. And when they reached out to me, when they noticed what I've been doing, they said, actually, we have another offer to you. There's this huge continent called Africa, and you, you may want to be our co-founder. So what happened is that I was hired as employee number one, and I had to stay with them for three years for my shares to vest. So I earned my position as a co-founder because they were the ones that gave me the ID to go to Africa, and they were the ones that gave me the money. And then just by delivering on the results, I earned my shares back. So it's a reverse model of the classical investment fund, uh, which there are many big players in the world that do this, but it's an unusual one. Hmm. That's great. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It shows once again, like it's still hard work, it's still mindset, but there's, there's always that little bit of luck too. Um, oh yeah. Oh, come on. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let me, uh, that, yeah, go ahead. No, 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 no. Just going to give Mary an opportunity here as well. It's just a little bit tricky, obviously, with the, with the Zoom thing, but I want to make sure we give uh, an equal opportunity for questions here. So your path has definitely been made by you, but what do you think is your natural gift to fall into these awesome opportunities and to see more opportunity? Maybe mm. your inspiration... Um, I, I want to go back to my childhood. Uh, you know, in, in the book that I've written, uh, first two chapters is really trying to analyze what has happened to me when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, and how this really shaped my personality. Because I do believe that your personality is shaped both by genes and, and what happens to you in the early stage of your life. And uh, I was that typical bullied guy in high school and in, in primary school. So I was obese. I had those big glasses. I was extremely good at maths and physics. And you, could, you, you probably know what, it, what comes afterwards in terms of being popular in sports among other guys and among girls. So uh, for a large portion of my life, I was driven by this need to prove everyone around and to myself that I'm worth something. I remember the, you know, when I made my first money, big money, I was 21 in this financial brokerage uh, company. I got myself the, the most expensive car I could get and I knew it's the best car in the whole city. And the first thing I did is I drove back to my hometown because I wanted to show off to all those guys that were bullying me. And, and that particular drive is a double-edged sword because it can get you very far in business. Um, now, many times when I hire people to sales teams, I do like to hire guys that either were training sports as a kid because that means they're disciplined 
or they were bullied in some sort because they have this powerful drive. Mm-hmm. I do, however, am aware of the fact that in the long term, if you don't know how to manage that internal motivation, it can destroy you from the inside because you can go into drugs, you can go into alcohol, partying, depressions, etc., etc. So it's a double-edged sword. Um, I believe that this has helped me a lot. And thank God I was able to uh, be aware of its destruction uh, late, later on in my life. Then I do play, I do fa- say, uh, what's the word? I do acknowledge that I had huge portion of luck in my life. I mean, let's start with this way. I've been living in Nigeria for four and a half years. And my neighbors were kids that were born in the north of Nigeria when there's Boko Haram, when the girls are kidnapped by Boko Haram and they become sexual slaves. I was born in a still communist Poland. My father was a soldier, my mom was a teacher. So they had the very uh, humble beginnings, but I was never hungry. You know, now I am more often hungry than I used to be as a kid because I'm, you know, I'm dieting and I'm doing this intermittent fasting thing. But they gave me everything I needed to grow and they gave me education. So that's already extreme luck. But then what happened to me is that um, my personality type has something to do with always driving, uh, being driven on chaos and doing a lot of things. I don't know what's the definition of that, but I did a lot of quantification of my personality. And I'm this type that collects a piece of data and then immediately takes action. Uh, against to being a generalist and analytical mind that spends a lot of time of uh, collecting data and then acts. And uh, I've, I've tried so many businesses in my life. Even now, in the last three weeks in, in Corona, because part of my business right now uh, in this AI company, half of our clients were online travel clients, big airlines and online travel agencies. So obviously all that business died. So in the last four weeks, I've already tried to open four other companies just to uh, build some diversification of my risk. And I think this is a skill that I, was, that I always had. And I knew how to quickly put things into action. It's like with a comedian. I guess a good comedian is not the one that always has good jokes, but it's the one that tells a lot of jokes and then knows which ones work or not. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the same with business. I have tried so many businesses that went bankrupt. In Africa, um, we've launched at least 10 companies which went bankrupt. And obviously now we're talking about Jumia and we're talking about RTB House, but there were always 10, 10 others which went totally down and we lost a lot of money. So I think that skill of being able to uh, uh, increase your potential chance of succeeding by doing many things at once, somehow juggling this, and that at, and that at the right moment doubling down on, on that one thing that, that gets traction. And I think this is what's been happening to me uh, many times. Uh, also in Poland, when I went bankrupt in 2008 crisis, and then I quickly wanted to do anything. Uh, and we launched a couple of startups at once, and a and couple of them uh, had some traction. Yeah. And I'm not sure if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it totally makes sense. Let me, let's, un, let's unpack that a little bit, just because I think that yeah. what you're describing right now could be very, very helpful for, uh, for many people, especially those who are more... Um, let's just say analytical or need more data, need more information, need a better understanding of exactly what is the likelihood of success and before they take any sort of action. Whereas what, what I love about what you just said is launching these three companies and, you know, over the last three weeks to see what sticks, what does that actually look like? Like, what does that mean that you have launched these three ideas in the last three weeks? What, what does that actually entail? 
So I'm, I'm going to give you an example. Um, yeah. Obviously, the further you are in business, the more contacts you have, the more opportunities you have at hand. And is that one thing that I've noticed the moment companies went into lockdown uh, is that a lot of businesses started to skyrocket in terms of demand. One of those businesses was a telemedicine business. Uh, so what I quickly done is I told one of my assistants to drop whatever she was doing and to build me a database of hospitals in South Africa. We found 1,200 of them. Uh, we quickly called all of them to ask them if they have email address. And then I quickly found a Polish company. I'm always sticking to Polish companies because I'm Polish. Then it's easier for me to find Polish technology companies. And I told them if they're interested to do any business in Africa, and they said, obviously not, because they think it's scary and they prefer to go to Germany or the United States. And then I offered them just let me be your representative and I can, so I can pretend I'm, I am already have a JV deal with you. And they said, okay. And then I quickly go back to the biggest uh, hospitals in, in South Africa that were actually shitting their pants. Sorry for my, <laughs> sorry for my French because they couldn't run their business because patients couldn't visit them anymore. And I offered them, I can quickly in two days uh, launch telemedicine software for you. Are you willing to do that? And they said, okay. So then, you know, I already went back to the other guys and told them I have clients for you. And just by marrying those two things, essentially in a couple of days, I was able to launch a new, new product uh, in, in, in particular business. It's just, I'm gonna give you another example. Um, I will always try to search for low hanging fruits. When we were running the online travel business in Nigeria, uh, after two years of operation, we were working with 20,000 hotels. We had an office in Nigeria and we were, we were signing hotels from 17 different countries. At that time, Booking.com was working with 2.5 thousand hotels in Africa, so 10 times less. The reason was that Booking.com was always trying to sign all the hotels uh, remotely. We quickly deployed people on the ground and tried to search for low-hanging fruits. So I wouldn't waste too much time on trying to get a deal, uh, which seems to be harder and harder to win. I would prefer to spend that time on on finding a new deal that there's a chance it, it will run faster. So I think mm -hmm. this, is, this, is what I, this is the role I'm sticking to. Instead of spending too much time on one deal or one client or whatever you're gonna call it, I spend that time on searching for something again, which is easier. You could call it laziness. Um, I guess I'm trying, I would call it searching for easier way to achieve the same result. One of the things I noticed in that, and it's kind of been common throughout what you've been talking about so far is, leveraging existing relationships and yeah. now granted you didn't have the relation excuse me you didn't have the relationships with the uh, african hospitals yet yeah and you had your assistant go through and start calling them but th that seems to be a big component and th that would also make sense for why you would start a new venture yeah instead of you know if if the relationship's not working and it's not growing fast why wouldn't you just start a new one quick question though because that that is definitely potentially helpful for people right now that have existing relationships what is what did the paperwork look like on a loose scale was it you know small contract was it no contract was it i'm just gonna do this and then you figured it out afterwards just so they can move quickly yeah. so uh, background about me i'm a guy that is allergic to excel and and i and i thrive on chaos i'm always most excited by the first stage of a company like zero to one million is what I, where i'm thriving at one to ten 
I always try to, you know, delegate as much as possible. I have this type of uh, personality. This is why I love doing business in Africa, because on paper, the law is pretty well structured because most of African countries have their law either designed based on French legal structure or British. But the enforcement of the law is another story. So you don't worry about the contract because there's no way for you to enforce that contract at court. You will waste way more money. It's all about building trust and uh, building leverage. Someone won't hurt you in business because you can hurt him back. It's like the situation where you're going to the dentist and you're holding his balls just to make sure he doesn't hurt you. Uh, sorry for that, for that joke. So there's another way to solve certain things and it's not about uh, securing your position with, with legal documents. For many business people, for many organizations, this is a deal breaker, you can't do it. I actually enjoy it because for me running a big business in Germany, or Sweden would be a pain uh, because I'm not designed uh, for this uh, particular thing. But to answer the first part of your question, yeah, I am always searching for an unfair advantage. I would do this telemedicine business because I knew that the biggest players were not looking at Africa at all. They were too busy with, uh, with other continents. And I already had people on the ground that were able to build a database of my prospects as easy as, you know, as simple as it sounds. No one else was able to do it that fast because I already had people deployed. So I'm always gonna look for unfair advantage. One of my startups in Poland was a marketplace for funeral businesses, for funeral services. And the only reason why I entered this particular sector is because I knew how many smart guys, how many young smart guys, much smarter than me, were entering the startup sector with millions of investment money and they were so smart in building different technology businesses. But I knew that none of the 20 couple year old guys wanted to tell his girlfriend he's going to funeral business. So that's how I knew I'm not gonna have competition too fast. Cause yeah, that's, that was, that was, I don't like competition. I prefer to run away, run forward, change the market or change the sector. Hmm. You know, it's interesting too. And, um, and, and I'm sure there are ways that so much of what you have done can be leveraged in, in other places, right? I mean, it's the, the ideas that you come up with are, are fairly universal. I mean, it's not that they're, they're designed to work solely in one particular community, one particular region. It, like, for example, the, the funeral services you're talking about. I mean, kind of a subject that's near and dear to our heart. I mean, we're actually in the process right now uh, of opening a funeral home for my wife here in San Diego. She's a, uh, a funeral director and embalmer and we're, you know. So, I, so the point being, I'm sure that like that is a perfect example of something. There's probably applications to the market here and you just need the right conduit or like, as I think about doing business in Africa, one of the reasons why I would be hesitant to do business on that continent is just not having the right conduit, not having the right contact, not really knowing exactly what to do there to, yeah. to make something work. And I think yeah. it would, it would obviously then work vice versa as well, where so much of what you you've done could be applied to other markets as well. Have you, have you intentionally limited your, uh, the, the scope of where you, you focus just because you know those particular markets so well, even though there could be potentially a, a much greater opportunity to apply what you've done in, in, in those specific areas to other markets? So taking it outbound uh, out to other markets as well, I guess is uh, just curious about that. Yeah. Um... Yes, I did. It was a conscious decision to focus on the African continent and to be precise on the sub-Saharan African continent. Because when you look at the northern countries like Egypt, Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, 
they are considered culturally or or economically are either European countries like Algeria, Morocco, or Middle Eastern countries like like Egypt or, or Libya. Or, uh, so Sub-Saharan Africa is like a more of a more of a block. It's still mm-hmm. a huge continent. You know, one country like Rwanda or Tanzania. When you look at the what can happen to the economy in the next ten or twenty years, it's probably more sexy and the potential is bigger than the whole you know Eastern Europe. That's how I look at it. And uh, I'm always looking at how I can leverage my network in order to grow businesses. I can leverage many things from Africa to other regions. Mm-hmm. I can't leverage whatever I built in Europe and go to the United States. So. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I guess you're playing your strengths and you're choosing your battles as, as cheesy as it sounds. You know? Yeah. I just one little piece of clarification on that. So what about, is it mostly taking your contacts from Europe, utilizing them in Africa and providing services in Africa, or does it ever utilizing your contacts in Africa and bringing it out yeah. of Africa? Yeah, I have, I have found a way for my personal fair advantage as a business person, and, and all the businesses I, I, I was able to launch, starting from Jumia with Rocket Internet, to Hotel Online, which was my second business, to to RTB House, which is the the business we're growing right now, um, and it's always me being the glue between between Africa and Europe for European investors and for European companies and business partners. I'm the guy that already has a reputation of building successful businesses in Africa and they can trust me. And I understand the local peculiarities of the market. So they're willing to invest in my, my entre- entre- enterprises. And then for the African potential partners that I need on the ground, I'm the guy that brings European capital, European technology sometimes. And they need that in most of the cases uh, because there, there's a lot of capital in Africa, but the capital doesn't like technology. A lot of rich people in Africa prefer to buy another piece of land or another oil business. They don't want to go into technology yet. That's a, that's a separate conversation. So I was able to leverage on, on being that, that connector between those two continents. And that's how I always started those businesses. The telemedicine I just told you about has the same playbook, really. And, and that has... has has been working for me pretty well and i can afford to launch four type of projects like that in a month and then after a month i say okay those three are not working we're doubling down on this one that's showed traction let's put the million dollar investments and let's see where it's going to take us whether we want to uh, go further or not having access to capital really allows you to uh to, to check whether things grow or not fast and diversify the risk yeah Thanks for the clarification. It, it actually helps out a lot on many levels, just even personal, because I like connecting too. But you say it in such a way that you can do all these different verticals, but it's base level. It's You take European yeah. investors and connect technology in Africa. That's It's easy. Mm-hmm. to Everyone can always remember that real quick, no matter what vertical you're in. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah thanks. Yeah. So quick question for you. So if somebody wanted to, to get started with any sort of, of entrepreneurial endeavor in Africa and specifically, you know, in, in the, in the, first of all, what, if you could only pick one region, one country, one area, if you will, to, to take a, a, a business that is doing well in America, let's say, let's, even even in terms of like the online world, uh, as an example, 
or you know we're in the we're in the game of podcasting where we've got podcast magazine and we you know we help people launch podcasts and you know obviously it's you know that technology exists in in africa uh as well i, I the, the question is if people just wanted to get started tapping into the opportunities what what would you recommend they do there uh that question so to come back to my playbook, I always try to stick to either marketplaces, platforms, and software as a service or B2B software, where the, the, the advantage of Europe was still pretty significant, meaning access to capital or certain technology that you couldn't build locally yet back then. Um, having said that, there are really businesses which are successful in the United States that probably won't be successful at all in Africa. You should really look more into what China is doing, or what India is doing, or even Pakistan, because demographically, economically, um, they are much closer to what's been happening. Uh, or Brazil. Uh, two successful case studies of South African company and Nigerian company expanding globally were actually case studies of going into India and Brazil, not to Europe or, or, or the United States. And one of the reasons is how wealth is distributed between people. Let me give you an example of Nigeria, 200 million people. Uh, however, only 2 million people, which is 1%, make more than $10,000 per year. So you have a city of 2 million people that can afford you know, stuff that you would probably say, I don't know, lower middle class in the US can afford. Mm -hmm. So there's only, there's only a handful of, of businesses that you can scale in the same way as you can do in, in, in the States. Having said that, um, you shouldn't do any type of business without a strong local partner. And I can already tell you that no sort of due diligence done remotely can, can, uh, can do you any, uh, give you any value. Because if there's a pretty legitimate company being based in Nigeria or Kenya and South Africa, they're getting hundreds of joint venture opportunities on an annual basis because so many companies that believe that negative PR are afraid to do it on their own. So they're very picky and they don't always have the commitment. What mm -hmm. I would do is I would, go to, I would go to a university, try to make friends with guys that study at a university that have come from uh, countries from Nigeria, or like Nigeria or Kenya or anything else, because you have someone that has, has come from that particular region, already has some commitment to, uh, to where you're based. You have the time to build relationship. You have the time to really get to know that person. And when you look at statistically who is the most successful entrepreneur in Africa, statistically are those guys who have come from Nigeria or Kenya when they were 15 or 20, their parents sent them to the States or Europe. They finished the high school there, they studied university, they got some first background experience, and then they went back to launch a company there. Mm. And statistically, this type of, this profile of entrepreneurs uh, can drive a business and make it successful and won't make any stupid mistakes. So we wanna partner up with those type of uh, profile of entrepreneurs. Yeah. Yeah, so the, so, is the plan to exit when you go into a venture is the plan always to exit do you look at these uh endeavors from a from a scale and hold perspective or how how do you evaluate yeah. the opportunities today so i guess i've already mentioned this a little bit that i am most excited about the early stage of every company and when i look yeah. at my past i've never been longer with one company than four years and with my current company, it's also uh, a, a close, to, close to four years. Actually, this particular business has been growing organically, so we never used any uh, external investment. 
What I'm currently trying to do is in order to get out of my comfort zone is to make the promise to myself that if I'm going to change a business and do another exit and start something from scratch, this time it has to be for 10 years. So that's where I am actually right now. Mm-hmm. Um, because I've been doing this thing of like jumping ships so often, I feel like I'm missing some part of, of excitement, of enjoyment, of building an organization that lasts for longer. Because I remember mm-hmm. like when I told you in the beginning about my switch to Africa from Poland, I felt like I was missing something. I was missing the international exposure and background and education. So I did that move. I sold my company to join these guys from Germany. And now I feel like I want to stay longer and learn also as a both entrepreneur and co-founder and CEO as well to build a company from zero to 10 years. And when you look at growth of technology companies worldwide, there's not too many CEOs that can do this. There's maybe Mark Zuckerberg, maybe Bezos, but then entrepreneurs are always changed. CEOs are changed because company requires different set of skills at different growth stages. And in order to be able to be a valuable CEO at every growth stage, you have to grow and learn as fast as the company changes, or you have Mm -hmm. to be able to remove yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Point well taken. We're going to, uh, we're going to wrap up here and just give Mary uh, an opportunity to ask any final questions and then give Rich an opportunity. And uh, and then we'll, we'll, we'll give you an opportunity to share how folks can get more information about you. But Mary, any, uh, any final questions from Eric? Well, I just kind of smiled because when you said that, you usually jump ship, but now you want to take it to 10 years. The word that came up for me was commitment and your mm-hmm. girlfriend's probably happy. <laughs> take it from business to personal. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's the joke I'm always saying that uh, at some point I realized I love to change companies. I love to change cars, apartments, you name it. But my current girl is my last one. That's what that, that's always the joke that I'm making, yeah, because she's listening. <laughs> um, yeah. So just to finish, um, you know, me being a, a very dynamic entrepreneur that likes to open new businesses and sometimes would jump ship if I could even make this company bigger, maybe from ten to one hundred or even even more. Uh, that also creates a lot of risks because every time you switch company, every time you want to do something new. There's new set of people you want to do it with. Uh, and that creates risk. And that's what happened to me because after this extremely positive adventure with Jumia, I jumped directly into the worst adventure of my life. When I opened a, another company with a big local player from Nigeria, I did this JV, like I always told you, with a huge company that has been on the market for 20 something years. And uh, long story short, at some point they decided they can run this company without this white guy, without this, uh, without this foreign entrepreneur that brought the technology and, and the concept. And uh, essentially, <laughs> I had to take them to court, including Nigerian police, because uh, what happened to me in Nigeria is that uh, Nigerian police can be easily bribed. They've issued a fake arrest warrant after me, and then I got an offer I couldn't refuse. The, the arrest warrant will be this will be will, will go away if I pay if I pay, either pay the money or give them back the company. Hmm. And it took me two years and a lot of court cases to win the whole case back. And I'm I'm the thankfully I'm the first foreigner in the history of Nigeria justice system to take them Nigerian police to court and won and win. Uh, but it could have ended ended way way worse. So I just wanted to add on on the whole story that I just shared with you that it seemed like it was a you know, series of successes, but there's also been a couple of so dangerous situations that just because I had huge amounts of luck, 
and I was able to get out of it not only uh, without losing everything, but also uh, you know safe and sound. Uh, but that's the risk and reward, I think, balance that you have when you're running businesses in the frontier markets. Yeah. yeah. Rich, any final questions from Eric? It, it kind of goes hand in hand with that last question or that last statement you had. Did you move to Spain because you just didn't want to be in Africa, but you wanted to still continue to do work with Africa? Or was that part of that? Uh... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... Um, after I won the case, which was May last year, May 2019 in Nigeria, where I was able finally able to, to get that court, court ruling that police have issued a fake arrest after me and they had to pay me damages, etc. Obviously, they never did, but I won symbolically. I never stepped my foot in Nigeria yet because maybe on the paper, uh, I'm, a, I'm a free innocent man. I was a victim, not the perpetrator. But if you want a court case with Nigerian police, I mean, you want to think twice before you go there. So 100% of all my business activities is still in one of those three countries. So I do Nigeria, Kenya, and South Africa, which is the, the biggest countries in the region. Uh, however, Nigeria, I don't do it remotely. I, I have my people that do that. The, the case of Spain is that my girlfriend is Dominican. She's from Dominican Republic. And for two years, when I was fighting in courts, officially, I couldn't leave Europe. Uh, because I would be stopped at any airport in the world and I would be extradited to Nigeria and it, would, it wouldn't be nice. So we've decided to move to Spain together because she could continue her career speaking Spanish and so on. And uh, I just can't handle the cold after leaving in six years, in already seven, uh, in Africa. I just cannot handle the cold in winter in Poland. So we, we decided that it's going to be Spain. And if it wasn't for COVID, I would be, you know, three years in a week, in a month, three weeks in a month uh, in Cape Town, where my African base is, and then I would go back to here to Barcelona. Yeah, awesome, man. And, uh, you know, you've got uh, got the book Chasing Black Unicorns, which is uh, definitely a, a very interesting read, especially for those who just were looking at the continent of Africa for, you know, potential opportunities and just getting inside your head and, and the stories that you share and, and so on, uh, you know, certainly appreciate you putting that down on paper for the rest of us. If, uh, if folks want more information about you, Merrick, where, where should they go? What, uh, what would you like them to do? So I don't want to pronounce my last name <laughs> because it's too hard to guess it. So I think the easiest way to find me is to just to type in on your browser, chasingblackunicorns.com. Uh, it's linked to the site with all the information about the book, about myself, my social media handles and so on. I think it's worth mentioning that all the revenue from the book and all the speaking engagement which I'm doing uh, related to this book going to a charity. You can also read everything about that uh, on, on chasingblackunicorns.com. And thanks so much for allowing me to share my story. Yeah, and what a story it is, man. Really appreciate you opening our eyes up to the to the opportunities there. And uh, just it, it's really interesting to see so much of what's going on, especially as you talk about Lagos and some of the other areas. And just, I mean, so much more that we could cover here. Uh, but, you know, the bottom line uh, really is just appreciate you opening our eyes to, to, to what's going on in a way that the media, frankly, just isn't isn't giving a, a fair shake to. Uh, and, and so there's a lot more positive things going on and a lot more opportunity there uh, than certainly meets the eye uh, for, for many of us, especially those of us here uh, in the States. So thank you. Thank you for the, you know, for the opportunity to just to see 
what's going on there. And uh, glad you made it safe and sound out uh, <laughs> out of the issue there with the uh, with the police and whatnot. And uh, just keep up the amazing work. So we'll let you drop, and then we'll continue here uh, on Beyond Eight Figures. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it very much. Thanks, guys. Stay Bye safe. Better. All the best. Bye yeah. bye. Yeah. yeah. All right. So. Um, We'll let Merrick drop there and uh, Rich and Mary, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. I don't know if you guys had a chance to watch um, any of his TED Talks. He's actually done uh, at least two of them that I found, uh, but certainly a, a just really, really interesting to, to hear his perspective uh, on, on what's going on in, in Africa. I mean, just even some of the, the developments that you see from a real estate perspective, uh, it just, it, it, it's, it's scary. And actually, if you think about it in the context of, of what's going on today in terms of the, the messages that we receive in terms of media, no matter what media outlets you tune into, you're getting a very specific message that can really color how you view the world. And I will tell you that if they put half the effort into showing the, the positive sides of what's going on in Africa, in the same way that they show the, you know, $18 a month will save this child. And they show, you know, it like, it's it's just amazing to me how little we see the other side of what's going on on that continent. Mm -hmm. Well, kind of alluded to it when he was talking to us that a lot of it actually happens from there too. They don't want people to know the opportunity, right? The world in general, for the most part, there's, you know, half a dozen, whatever, that whole thing. Six and one half a dozen the other. Yeah. But um, in general, it seems like it's a us versus them when someone's losing, someone else is winning, when someone's winning, someone else is losing. And mm -hmm. you might have more of it. Well, not might. You do have more of a abundance mindset. And so you see that and you want to think about that. You know, hey, you could really help out yourself and Africa by just doing this business and making more one plus one is 11 one plus one is three whatever synergistic synergistic um adventure that you would start but i think that that's kind of goes hand in hand with your thing with the media is is media overall it's keep people scared they tune in people aren't going to sit in front of a tv and watch media when everything's fine and they can go out and do a bunch of things. And mm -hmm. this is an old school media, no pun intended, right? And you, you deal in the world of new media. We yeah. all do. And I think they're really just grasping all they can because they're seeing how, like if people weren't scared and they weren't tuning in, I don't know how they're going to make money moving forward unless they get into other stuff. I just don't yeah. see it. Yeah. The, the stereotypes, are are real the, and the and the programming is is real you know and, and it was and it was interesting because as he was talking and in a couple of his ted talks he talks about the the numbers the you know you can just what we 
perhaps perceive as being reality in terms of people having money to invest in the middle class and people in professional jobs and wanting to improve their lives and so on on that continent, it's the, the perception is that doesn't exist. And so I will say that in just you know, being completely honest here, having an online business where we do reach people almost anywhere on the planet, right? I mean, we have customers in, in I don't know, over, I don't even know what the count is, but it's, it's dozens and dozens and dozens of countries. And I will say that whenever any sort of correspondence comes in from Nairobi or, you know, Kenya or any of those places, like for me, the, the red flag goes up and that's just wrong. You know, I mean, these are just people who are, you know, trying to improve their lives and want access to education and information and, and so on. Um, and, and I will be the first to admit that I, that I am guilty of, of that whole sort of Nigerian prince scandal, you know, that went on for years of, you know, we got to, we got this money and send us this and then we'll do that. Right. The kind of thing. Um, and there's, an equal amount, if not a significantly greater amount of idiots and crooks right here on our own soil doing stupid crap. And for that, you know, one scheme to impact how, you know, and speaking for me personally, how I see it when somebody writes in from, you know, from one of those countries, that's just wrong. You know, and it's just, it's just wrong. And we, we have got to do a better job. Um, it's certainly it, not only educating, of course, our youth, but educating our generation because we have been programmed in very specific ways. Even, you know, look at the whole Live Aid thing and all of the images that we got, you know, 20 years ago in terms of Live Aid and what Africa supposedly is like those are the images that so many of us, at least in this Gen X generation, still really hold true. And it's just not. There is still some of that, but that's not all that it is. So really interesting. And, uh, and, and super glad that we had Mark on Beyond Eight Figures today. Um, and I would just encourage all of you to check out Chasing Black Unicorns and the work that Merrick is doing. And his last name uh, is Mislowski, but it's actually uh, with a Z in front of it, Z-M-Y-S-L-O-W-S-K-I. And you can see all the fun stuff that he's doing and really just eye-opening presentations and great writing and uh, a lot of success uh, with those businesses as well. So definitely check out the work that, uh, that he is doing and we look forward to sharing more from entrepreneurs who have had success on, um, you know, all over the globe. And uh, this is just a perfect example of someone who just kind of flies under the radar. You'd never know that they exist, but just doing so well uh, in Cape Town and in Spain, et cetera, et cetera. And anyway, it's just really interesting to be able to sit down with someone who has such a unique global perspective. And I think we need to try to bring more of those types of entrepreneurs onto Beyond Eight Figures. So, Really appreciate you guys being here. I will leave it at that for Mary Goulet and Richie Ote, Kelly Pelker, and White Wade. We'll talk to you guys next time here on Beyond Eight Figures.